Hello and welcome back to Identity Architects, the podcast that spotlights individuals who are changing the way that data and identity can be used to drive more engaging consumer experiences. I'm your host Ben Cicchetti and for this episode our COO Lauren Wetzel sat down with Keith Petrie, founder and CEO of Locker, to discuss data privacy, regulation, consumer awareness and much much more. Before I hand it over to Lauren and Keith, just a reminder to hit that subscribe button so you know when the latest episode of Identity Architects lands. But without any further delay, here's Lauren and Keith. So Keith, for anyone who doesn't know you, can you please just give us a quick intro? Who is Keith Petrie and who is Locker? Love it, Lauren, InfoSum. Thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Keith Petrie. I'm the founder and CEO of Locker. I've spent the past 12 years in the data management space. Uh, that started when we spearheaded the first mobile DMP back in back in 2012. Uh, since then, I've bounced around from a number of firms and gone through a few acquisitions. My most uh, recent stint was as the chief strategy officer for Screen6. We were acquired by Samba TV. We were the largest private identity graph provider. We deduplicated data sets and built cross-device browser and device connectivity for a number of ad tech platforms and some of the world's largest brands. We were acquired at the end of 2018. Samba was a client of ours and saw a strategic need to bring us in-house. I've always been passionate about data and identity, and I'm kind of flipping the script now and leveraging my background and understanding more or less how the sausage is made uh, to give consumers a means to control their own identity, consent, and data. And that's what Locker is setting off to do. Super helpful. Screen 6, Samba, all really great experiences that are going to bring a lot to this conversation. Typically, we go first head on into kind of the topics that are most relevant to all of the identity architects that we bring on here. But before we get into the meat, um, of why we have this podcast, I actually want to do some quick fire questions right out the gate. And so switching it up a little bit, bear with me. What is your, Keith, your first earliest memory of advertising and marketing? Oh, man. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that I could take this in a number of different directions, but the one that stands out most to me right now is Hestrux. So Hestrux always had incredibly catchy commercials, and it was something that I always looked forward to because my, my grandfather actually always bought me one for Hanukkah each year. And so I have an enormous collection of Hestrux. Uh, and who knows? Maybe, maybe they're like Pokemon cards or something. I should, I should go look into those. <laughs> what was your first job in either advertising or marketing? So a little bit further back past Screen 6 and Zomba. <laughs> Yeah. So early days, actually, as soon as I got my license, I started doing uh, deliveries for a local wine store, Anglewood Wine Merchants, which is still around and services the New York area. Uh, and as soon as they saw what skills I had beyond just driving, obviously, uh, I started doing direct marketing for them. And ironically enough, given Locker's first product in market, which is called Locker Mail, uh, I built a number of crawlers that scraped public databases for you know lawyers and doctors and other various listing websites. And we would leverage those emails to do direct marketing. Uh, and so we would do mid-tier wine promotion and, you know, get get a exclusive on a, on a number of cases of wine and distribute them uh, through these uh, high high earners 
So it was it was pretty fun doing doing that and facilitating the growth of their online business. That that's a legitimate entrepreneurial advertising start. Usually, <laughs> I, I I get uh, three named like answers to that to that question. So that was actually yeah. Really I mean, it it, it was pretty interesting for direct mail uh, in any capacity for the wine business. It was actually the early days of Gary V and and the wine library. Uh, and so there's, there's some fun stories that I could, I could tell over an industry <laughs> happy hour. Uh, unfortunately not this podcast. Um, knowing what you know now, what would you say to yourself when you started your career? So a, a, a little bit of a two-part answer here, but I've, I've always been a networker and I would not have accomplished what I have thus far without aligning myself with, with good people. So building a network and strong relationships was something I invested in from an early age. However, to answer your question, something I often overlooked and approached very incorrectly was my inability to ask my network for help. Uh, as my parents will tell you, I've always had to learn by making a mistake myself versus seeing or hearing of someone else's experience. Uh, you know, I always needed to touch the fire or, or cut myself or something. So if I can self-reflect and, and score my own progress, I believe I'm I'm much more open at this stage of my career to avoid uh, to, to actually accept this guidance. Uh, and I wish that I had come to this realization, uh, earlier in my ventures. Well, so helpful as a founder and an early stage company to just ask for the help. I totally agree with that advice. You surprisingly receive more help when you ask for it. Funny, funny how that works. Yeah. I always just try and remind myself like smarter people have solved this before. Smarter people have done this before. Like not a big fan of recreating wheels. Absolutely no need. What do you love about what you do right now at Locker and and obviously just the state of which the industry that we're in right now? Yeah. So in terms of what I do right now and what I love about it is candidly the constant change. So being a founder or even an early employee of any type of venture means that you need to be able to shift priorities constantly uh, in the areas that you're focusing on. But also you need to be very uncomfortable with the unknown. So it's it's kind of interesting because surprisingly, even when you first meet me, you can tell that I I feel much more comfortable in a predictable situation. Uh, my family makes fun of me and you know, I send calendar invites for family get togethers, uh, but I thrive at work in a state of uncertainty. So I guess it's all about balance in one's life. In terms of the industry, uh no one grows up saying that they want to work in ad tech, at least as far as I know. Uh, but I'm proud of you for saying that out loud. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I'd be surprised if they even have it as a, a course in, in college at this stage, at least with updated materials. I mean, you know, do they have the open RTB spec uh, included in any <laughs> courses? <laughs> so I've always found comfort uh, in quantifying my own personal life. And that's led me down a road where I've been obsessed with data uh, and not only obsessed with my own data, but then consumer data as a whole. And so given where the industry is now, you know, there's this crossroads between privacy regulation and just tectonic shifts by the larger operating systems and browsers. It's a really exciting time to be leveraging this type of background and, and passion to truly empower the consumer. And the consumer is often the most overlooked stakeholder of the internet, which is humorous given that they're the driving factor of the internet. So I, I firmly believe that if the industry embraces these changes, instead of trying to maintain the status quo, uh, all parties involved are going to benefit in the future. So 
that's that's really what I'm looking to engage with the market and, and have open conversations and dialogues like this to to further that that stance. Well, to double click on your point of being data obsessed, we and, and double click obviously pun intended, <laughs> we're obviously obsessed with this concept of identity. Um, my favorite question we ask everyone who comes on this podcast is, you know, how would you explain this term identity to a 10 year old? So I love this question and I definitely cheated a little bit here, having binged a number of episodes of Identity <laughs> Architects in preparation for this, for this recording. Uh, I'm going to actually combine two prior answers that really resonated with me and then build upon it a little bit further. So uh, Matthew Berkby's answer was in regards to provi- proving who you are with a piece of paper, even if you as an individual are wearing a disguise. Uh, then Michael from Kroger uh, articulated that it was that identity surrounded what excites you, what are you interested in, and that represents your identity. And both of these really spoke to me, and I agree with them both. But to provide a further metaphor on top of this, a profile, as Michael said, in terms of your interest, is not a full identity. Identity is a means of connecting and communicating the same person, browser, or device across different platforms. Uh, And so if you imagine asking a 10-year-old what their favorite toy is every day for a week, maybe a few days it will repeat the same item, uh, but it will certainly shift over time. And it also changes based on that individual's environment and their surroundings and external forces. And even depending on who asks that individual for their favorite toy, or in this case, identity, they might get shy and walk away and not provide an answer. And what's interesting is that that's the world of identity that we're seeing today. We're seeing different disguises for different business relationships. And sometimes there's actually a lack of identity altogether. And so I I really, I'm cheating a little bit because I'm not answering, but I'm combining both of those answers into something that I think is, is uh, I think beautiful might be a stretch and I'm, I'm grading my own homework here, but uh, it really resonated with me and in, in, in a number of conversations I've had over the past week. Yeah, I remember both of those conversations. Actually, I, was, I had interviewed Michael and I remember appreciating this notion that there is some element of identity that's in your control. And I think that's part of that exchange with consumers. So I totally agree. And I love the additional metaphor there. Uh, so three quick ones. What keeps you awake at night? Maintaining the integrity of the open and free web. And I know how corny and altruistic that sounds, but competition truly breeds innovation. And we wouldn't be where we are today without the incredible speed by which, you know, the new frontier of the internet has provided. Uh, And so this, this entire concept uh, is threatened right now in terms of machine-generated emails continuing to persist. And that means that publishers may or may not shift to paywalls or other gated mediums. And allowing the open flow of information as we know it uh, is, is really important to me as an individual. Uh, and so the requirement to pay for information on the internet, or at least all information on the internet, will only exacerbate the socioeconomic divides in our society. Uh, so I, I'm personally driven to make sure that that is not completely shut off. 
I wonder if this is the same answer then to, to my next question, which is what gets you motivated in the morning? Uh, definitely the same answer, but to extend beyond that uh, and make it more of a tangible, I love building something uh, that didn't exist before. So something that consumers need right now, but it's also something that will be integral to their digital life in the future. And related to that, I thrive in short feedback loops, fast iterations. Uh, you know, I'm a quintessential early stage founder. I like going from zero to one. So looking at that from a day-to-day basis, that's what makes me uh, jump out of bed in the morning. That's a much more profound answer. Mine is really just coffee. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's after I get out of bed. If, if there was a song, this is actually a personal question. I ask every new hire at InfoSum as they join the team, mainly because I'm obsessed with building playlists. And I just always think understanding people's music tastes, especially when it's you're truly as a testament to building diverse and inclusive teams, it should be a pretty epic playlist. If there was a song that was a soundtrack to your life, what would it be? Under Pressure by Queen and David Bowie. I've heard that one come up before with some hires. So let's get into the key questions. You touched on some of this in your intro, um, but let's just make cookie the first time that we say it, maybe hopefully the last time that we say it. But the third party cookie is almost extinct, or as my colleague uh, highlighted in a blog last week, I think people are swiping left on cookies, which I thought was cute. So even though Google recently announced an extended deadline, what are your thoughts on, as you mentioned before, the status quo in the industry right now? Yeah, I mean, Google's delay is purely causing procrastination around the industry, which is unfortunate. We've seen this time and time again for other standards and shifts, and it's not very productive to push the ball down further down the line. So major tech players, Google, Apple, you know, they're taking this opportunity to set themselves up essentially to own identity, and they're doing this underneath the guise of privacy. And purely because regulators are not as well-versed in this niche area of a niche industry. Uh, And so these behemoths are truly taking advantage of this information asymmetry between the uh, industry themselves and the regulatory bodies. Uh, And they are having these changes appear to be in the best interest of the users, but it will inevitably provide even more of a buffer between themselves and any future competition. And publishers and platforms, they, they truly need to act fast to stay in the game and to own their own audience directly. Uh, so none of the proposed identity solutions at the moment uh, are truly taking into, the consideration, into consideration the interests and the needs of the consumer. Uh, and any solution that's trying to maintain the status quo without incorporating the growing focus on self-sovereign data ownership, uh, its they're just going to be Band-Aids and a short-term whack-a-mole type of strategy. And so, you know, there's, there's only opportunity, but only if the industry embraces that a consumer is now at the table. To your point on procrastination, you know, we see this both with brands, advertisers, publishers, and the platforms, whether it's Google, whether it's regulation, whether it's just really even waiting for their peer set, the competition. What is everyone else going to do? Who's going to adopt first? And then it's it's sort of, 
you know, fast followers in terms of action. And it kind of makes you want to shake some companies because it's sort of like the time has come for change. We also know on that procrastination that first party data is an integral part of the marketing strategies of today and tomorrow. So what are some of the things that you would recommend if, if while we're shaking these companies <laughs> and we're saying don't procrastinate, like what do you do in 2022 to prepare for the future? I can't believe 2022, it's, it's rapidly coming to an end. Yeah, we should almost rephrase this as 2023. <laughs> yeah. So brands, advertisers, publishers, they all need to be very careful to maintain the integrity of their first party data. Uh, listening to a number of your prior episodes, there's undoubtedly like a focus on publisher first party data and the growth of retail media. And this issue is facing both of these trends. Uh, and that's the concept of matching with any external partner. So for example, a large retailer that spoke on a prior episode highlighted their new offering in the market that took advantage of their direct consumer relationship and the data uh, generated therein. And enabling this asset on any SSP or publisher or ad server or measurement company, that all relies on a common identifier. So I always split consumer data up into two different pieces. There's the, the profile and the descriptors. That's one piece. And then on the opposite side is that it, it needs to be tied to some type of actionable ID. And that ID is more or less transitioning to email with the depreciation of cookies, uh, as well as device IDs on mobile and native operating systems. Uh, the, the vast majority of matching, as InfoSum can attest, is, is on email. And so if you just look at the probably most simplistic and only thing you remember from high school uh, is the transitive theory of equality. And that just makes me sound smarter than I am. Uh, let, let's use some like fake brand names in this description. But if Nike has a golf enthusiast profile tied to Keith at Gmail, and Keith at Gmail registers on the Wall Street Journal, then an ad can be displayed. The two entities are speaking the same language. And the same is true if it is a common hash of the same email. And even if it's done through a data clean room or any other industry-wide effort for matching. And that's very comparable to how cookie syncs work. However, this means that the majority of authenticated solutions in the market today rely on the consumer providing a persistent email address to every brand and publisher they interact with. And this just isn't going to be the case. A simple example would be to look historically in the B2B sector, like a business trying to target a, a decision maker in procurement at a business entity can't target them on Instagram because they didn't set up their Instagram with their work email. Uh, and this, you know, let alone the growth in direct email marketing and the continuous efforts by consumers to combat this email, uh, you now see the growth in machine generated emails uh, and large brands have witnessed this and are hopefully taking steps to control it moving forward. Uh, so identifying these machine generated emails at the point of sign up uh, and these temporary emails is very important because they're worthless for this matching mechanism. Uh, there's no way to identify that same user across sites or devices, meaning that you have an extremely, you know, siloed look at that individual. Uh, and that's exactly what Locker is providing a number of publishers and brands in the market. On that thread, how should the industry view empowering consumers to take control of their data? 
or so, maybe even said differently, how can we make consumers feel more confident in taking advantage of these tools? And you can go into Locker specifically. Okay, I I, uh, I was going to try to keep this pretty high level, but I'll, I'll take the take the opportunity here. So consumer consent is all important, but the mechanisms of obtaining that consent are extremely complicated. So we need to give consumers the tools to clearly opt in or opt out of data sharing at any point. So Locker is in a unique position in that it clearly requests consent as part of its SSO solution and gives consumers a way to manage that consent on a per company basis over time in their Locker dashboard. So any other consent mechanism in the market is not looking out for the best interests of the consumers, but it's actually a mechanism paid for and looking out for the business it represents. So the way that I like to clearly articulate this is if you have a brand leveraging a traditional CMP in the market, that CMP is acting as a, a lawyer and representing the best interest of that company that is paying the monthly fee fee for that CMP. And then on the opposite side of the transaction, you have John Smith. And as of today, John Smith is more or less representing themselves in people's court. And John Smith does not have a law degree or understand what rights uh, he has in the current environment. And that's where Locker steps in. We are a true uh, CMP, a consent management platform owned for and working on behalf of the consumer. And that makes a lot more sense to me. I think both, both solutions have to exist, uh, but we need an entity or more than one entity working on behalf of the consumer. I think that's so important. Without the consumers, there'd be no business. <laughs> and to, to shift gears a little bit, this includes data privacy and shifting away from third-party cookies or the status quo that we referenced before. And what are some of the challenges that you see in the industry? We talked about the procrastination we talked about being reliant on some of the big companies making these decisions and delaying it is driving procrastination. But what haven't we talked about yet that you think are critical problems? So the shift away from cookies and regulations such as, such as the GDPR and CCPA and and newer proposed uh, bodies stem from a concern over consumer privacy. Yet the majority, the large majority of consumers are okay with sharing their data, provided they know how it's being used and have control over their own consent. Most consumers would rather see a targeted ad than a completely irrelevant one, but they don't want their data to be sold or used in ways in which they have little visibility. Maintaining and respecting the relationship between consumers and publishers and advertisers is extremely important. And that just means we need to put in put levers in place that we have on the ad tech and martech and B2B side of the equation, but we need to bring those to the consumers. Uh, the new identity solutions in the market are making assumptions about what's important to consumers while ultimately trying to serve the economics of the uh, current industry. And the consumers don't actually have a say. And so you know, when talking about these challenges, there's very little voice. I mean, this is obviously a theme that we've brought up multiple times across multiple uh, questions here, but there, there needs to be a consideration for the consumer that hasn't taken place historically. And unfortunately, the draws and the requirements for current revenue models and current businesses that exist 
are sometimes at odds with the new way that we should move forward as, as an industry. And that, that, that requires some uncomfortable conversations. Yeah, I agree. And sometimes for us who have worked in this industry, who sort of saw, you know, data first being put to use for the evolution of digital advertising, and then some of the carelessness that evolved and access to data that intermediaries got, it's sometimes a little bit of whiplash, like how did we get here? But for anyone who's not in the industry, your family, your friends who don't talk about things like cookies all the time or don't understand the fine print and are now seeing a lot of really big companies shine a light on things like privacy or tracking and these, these this language that we're so fluent in that you know hasn't really been a mainstream conversation. I think it's it's a really interesting time <laughs> where you know at, on one hand we have an advantage for being aware of this. On the other hand, it makes it that much more clear how fine print and whether something is following the law or not, but that is still just not necessarily putting the consumer first. Um, it's, it's, it's just sort of tricky. It's really interesting when you, when you talk to anyone who's just outside of the industry, trust, trust is a big part of our business. We talk about it a lot. You highlighted it in a handful of areas when you're talking about putting that consumer first. So what are some of the things that you think need to change and how can we as an industry come together, the many different components of it and redefine our relationship, not only with consumers, but with each other? So I'm going to focus very much on trust within the industry. And I think that we are having, I think that we are causing a a disservice to each other in terms of the nomenclature of, of what identity is. And so everyone's trying to ride the gravy train that is identity. And it's almost laughable when you and I, I'm sure, uh, let me know if you don't agree, see industry reports listing out, all these so-called identity vendors. We need to yes. stop calling contextual and creative and other quote-unquote solutions identity. Uh, just because you use a signal on a page to assign, as an example here, a category to the viewer doesn't mean it is identity. Uh, you know, The world made progress and innovated because we were all aligned. Uh, you know, An example that I actually referenced earlier was you know, mathematics is a universal language. We're all able to work together. We standardize things like measurement metrics, uh, except for people, I guess, holding on to the imperial system. But uh, as an industry, we need to (laughs) define not only terms and labels, but also create open standards for consent and consumer data ownership and identity and subject access requests. And, you know, just look at how far we've come on open RTB standards. And we need those same things uh, you know, Locker's own concept of consent should be open sourced. Uh, and, you know, or we're happy to conform to any mechanisms that are offered by an industry wide initiative that's accepted. Uh, this would also, I'm shooting myself in the foot here, but this would welcome competition and other platforms that can truly put the consumer first, like us. Uh, you know, we came to this industry to work on how can a consumer grant consent and transfer his or her her own real identity to a publisher, a brand, a retailer. And we 
we looked at the industry and said, how can we communicate this best so that you can ingest it and respect it and respect any opt-out, whether that opt-out occurs at the first point of contact or three months later, and nothing existed. So we wrote our own APIs uh, that seamlessly integrate with our uh, SSO that we offer. And honestly, I, I didn't want to do that. So I'm very open to the opportunity to quote unquote donate that structure, that code base, not that it's complicated, but to, to lend it as a framework and allow a competitor to build on top of it. You know, Locker is starting with a consumer facing tool, uh, that solves an immediate need. It's, it's, you know, we focus on time to value. And so our, our product and market is locker mail and our users use us as a publicly facing email. Uh, but we're the only solution that's not at odds with the open, uh, web and, and the, the infrastructure that, you know, uh, Infosum and, and other companies have built to support it. And I want more competition because that's just going to breed innovation and and hopefully prove successful in the long term. I love that. I also think you and I could probably moonlight with a TED Talk co-hosted by us on how the industry can be very intellectually lazy about the boxes that it creates and then the logos that they place in boxes. Um, it was, I believe it was on Ari's Architecture that our CEO, Brian Lesser, kind of highlighted that. But similar to what you mentioned on identity, we see also with data cleanroom technologies. And when you're trying to either set a standards or when you're talking about things like the level of privacy enhancing technology that's a part of data cleanrooms, we also experience the same level of frustration that, that you're saying as well, which is just the conflation of one of these things is not like the other. And there's no possible way that there are actually 50 different data clean room technologies. And I agree with you. There's also no way that there's, you know, a hundred plus and just wait for privacy, very similar to what we saw in Europe with the GDPR wipe out many of those. Now I'm using air quotes, which is inappropriate for a podcast, but identity company. So I think you and I are very aligned on that. And I think your call to action on competition and partnerships and sort of the access to the tech is, is is inspiring final question before well I, that's a, that's a lie that's a, the final final before the final question while i keep on this topic and while we keep on consumers because you're passionate about it and i i believe all of our listeners for identity architects are passionate about it but what do the consumers need in order to be best equipped for companies collecting their data and what tools can we as an industry offer them so that's back to not you and I, Keith, who know this industry and know the ways of working, but you know the family, the friends, the folks outside of our industry. What do they need to be doing? Yeah, so this is the age-old question, to be honest, uh, and and I I could take it in a number of different ways, but in the most simplistic form, consumers need to understand how their data is being used in a clear and concise way without having to read lengthy and buried data policies. They need a way to opt out of data sharing with zero dark patterns or malicious behavior. And they need a straightforward and honestly a singular platform in place to manage their data and their consent over time. 
Uh, an example, I mean, I might consent to sharing my data with company X today, but I could change my mind in the future and I need to be able to withdraw that consent. Uh, it shouldn't be a one-time decision and it shouldn't, you know, require me to jump through hoops to, uh, <laughs> to withdraw that consent or maybe as simple as unsubscribe from a newsletter. So we need to make data and identity control more transparent and accessible as a whole. But from there, the value exchange will not only become more transparent, but also improve the lives of the consumer and the goals of the brand and the publisher. And to take this in, in a more tangible direction, Locker has plans to support all of this and more in the future. But knowing that the average internet user is not Lauren or I, or <laughs> candidly, anybody that's listening to this podcast, uh, <laughs> anybody who doesn't know that this podcast exists, we need to slowly educate uh, through a platform of trust. And that's why our first product in market does not truly dive into uh, data ownership or uh, provisioning access to one's data in exchange for benefit or all these other things that we're very open about within the community as our plans. Uh, but today it's, it's a straightforward email productivity tool. Uh, and we have outlined a number of ways to slowly introduce new concepts, more complex concepts over time through partnerships uh, to empower that consumer to have complete control over their own identity, consent, and data. And even we do not have control of that. If a consumer in the future wants to leave our platform and go to a competitor, they can take all of their data from Locker and move over to competitor X, whoever they, that might be at the time. Uh, and that's the type of internet that I want to be a part of. Amazing. These are the actual final two questions, which is really just, Keith, you educated us a lot. You broke down really complex things in a way I think people don't necessarily get a chance to understand or appreciate. So for all of the future listeners that aren't fluent in ad tech or majored in ad tech or check that box at an early age, can understand, which I appreciate. But is there anything that you didn't get a chance to say or that you want to add? I mean, I just want to go back to you stating majored in ad tech. Uh, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> we need to work on curriculum or something. So, no, I mean, going back to, uh, I mean, I think that we've talked around the topic a lot in terms of like what Locker is and how does it fit in. Uh, and that's not the purpose of, of this conversation. But uh, to give a little bit of more, more color to what we do today, I mean, and what we plan on doing in the future. Locker is a consumer first company. I want to get make sure that that's extremely clear. I don't think many of your guests, I guess a few brands are a consumer company, but we're not an ad tech company, but we partner with the industry to create a consent-based a consent-based identity solution that preserves the economics of the open and free internet. Uh, we are currently the only privacy-oriented consumer company that is partnering with ad tech. Uh, you know, a lot of the alternatives to locker mail that are out there are extremely harmful to all identity solutions in market, all matching solutions in market. Uh, you know, we have Apple hide my email, Firefox relay, DuckDuckGo, cloaked, et cetera. These are all, uh, tools that allow a consumer to mask or, you know, 
present themselves with a disguise, as a 10-year-old might say, on different platforms. So Locker offers free APIs to publishers that help you and preserve that audience data and prevent machine-generated emails in real time. Uh, it's a win-win and it's a low-risk integration. And uh, it's something that we know will uh, you know, prove out more beneficial for publishers, SSPs, data clean rooms, et cetera. And uh, we're excited to bring it to market. Thanks so much for going into that. Last promise, final question. This Identity Architects podcast is all about the individuals who have pioneered new ways to use data to deliver better customer experiences. And you just highlighted a range of those. So when you look to people you admire in the industry earlier, you said the advice you would give your former self was to rely a little bit more on your network to do that outreach. Who should we have on this podcast for an upcoming episode? So I wanted to give you somebody like kind of out of left field. I didn't want to just, you know, go to a default cross device vendor or identity vendor or, or you know, uh, another data clean room or anybody. So I, I thought about this for a while and I'd, I'd highly recommend uh, connecting with Eli Schwartz uh, to hear about his personal story, to be honest, as well as the product that they're putting together over at Verisk Marketing Solutions. So uh, they've invested quite heavily in recent uh, quarters. Uh, they've done over 350 million in M&A recently uh, to build a, an in-house data solution with their own data set and power personalized customer experiences for the insurance and financial services sector, which is a little bit outside of the normal realm of, of uh, traditional ad tech conversations. Uh, and I, I met you like personal, important data though. <laughs> yes, extremely personal. And, you know, lead gen is actually a, an industry that I'm, I'm way less familiar with. Uh, you know, I'm used to credit card transaction data, location data, browser behavior data. So th this is, you know, self-declared I'm, you know, I need a new mortgage or I'm purchasing a car or I, you know, insurance is, is all about uh, life events. And so I met Eli at the start of his career and uh, he was an early employee at, at Jornaya. They were a small startup and he, he has, uh, man, how do you say this? Typically you look up to somebody who's later in their career. I look up to Eli who is earlier in his career yet has accomplished more than me. And uh, he's currently the chief strategy officer over at Verisk. And uh I'm really impressed by everything he's been able to execute against. That's amazing. That's one of the best answers we've gotten. What I always say is at least a little bit about InfoSum is like data collaboration isn't just extended to, you know, ad tech or martech or the space in which advertising thrives. And to your point on open web, there's so many other opportunities. I think identity and obviously the stories and the solutions that we talk about on identity architects also extends, um, which is a huge reason we had you on here, Keith. I, I still don't know who to thank for our introduction. Maybe it was Ari, maybe it was Val. You don't but remember way, our amazing dinner in Vegas? No, but I but I feel like we were connected before then. So I don't know if I want to exclusively give all of the credit to Ari. I, I would split credit between Ari and Katie Glass. Okay. Oh, yes. Okay. Credit to Katie, credit to Ari. I'm so thrilled. One, that we met. Two, for everything that you're doing at Locker. Um, I'm a huge fan of it from the consumer angle, and I just love how you're able to educate on so many very complex topics that are near and dear to 
the listener base of Identity Architects. And just thanks so much, Keith, for, for joining us today. Appreciate the opportunity and the time and look forward to many more of these conversations in the future. Thanks again to Keith for joining us for this episode. The relentless focus on the consumer and protecting their privacy is exactly what we need right now. All that leaves for me to do is to remind you to hit that subscribe button so you know when the next episode of Identity Architects lands. But until then, thanks for listening. Thank you.